there comes a sort of a preeminent time in our life where we sort of stop and say, okay, what is all this about? Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Man Talks Podcast. My name is Roger Naren. And I'm Connor Beaton. Uh, before we get started with today's podcast, we are so excited to announce that we have expanded the Man Talks community. Uh, as of today, we are now in both Toronto, LA, and Vancouver, which is super, super exciting. So if you happen to be in any of those cities, please come out to our events. You can check out our events on mantalks.com. And if you're not in those cities and you would like to see Man Talks in your community, uh, reach out to us by going to mantalks.com. We've got a contact us section. We will personally respond to your notes. Personally. Personally. So today's guest is legendary, legendary Lee Eisenberg. Lee Eisenberg has enjoyed a colorful and distinguished career, which is definitely, definitely true in both the creative and business sides. As editor-in-chief of Esquire magazine, he led the publication to numerous national magazine awards in diverse categories such as general excellence, reporting, and design. He was also the founding editor of Esquire in the UK. In 1991, Eisenberg was recruited to be one of six founding partners of the Edison Project. In 1995, Eisenberg joined Time, Inc., where as a consulting editor, he helped Time Magazine launch a series of initiatives, including Time.com. And in 1999, Eisenberg was named Executive Vice President of Creative Director of Land's Inn, the, the clothing company. He resigned in 2004 to, being, to begin work on The Number, which is an amazing book if you haven't had a chance to read. It was voted... Business Week's top 10 career books of 2006. The number earned a place on numerous national bestseller lists, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Business Week, and USA Today. His latest book is called The Point Is, Making Sense of Birth, Death, and Everything in Between. It offers a fascinating modern take on human history's oldest question, why are we here and what does it all mean? Eisenberg draws on a fascinating array of philosophers, psychologists, poets, novelists, and everyday people to advance a provocative theory on how we attempt to explain ourselves to others. The book was named one of the 10 best-selling titles in its category by Publishers Weekly, and we can't wait to dig into it more today. So without further ado, let's bring on who may, quite honestly, could be the most interesting man in the world, and he kind of looks like him. And he sounds like Woody Allen. And he sounds like Woody Allen, <laughs> Mr. Lee Eisenberg. Hi, Lee. Welcome to the Mad Talks podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Good to be here. So before we get started, we always like to ask our guests, what is a defining moment for you as a man? <laughs> as a man, huh? That's well, funny. You know, I don't really... Uh often think of myself as a man. Uh, I think of myself as a me. Um, and I guess if you'd asked me to think about what defines me as a me, I think probably what defines me as a me could also apply to defining a woman as well as me. You know, I've just finished researching and writing a book, and I actually thought a lot about how we define ourselves. Um, and... You know, if you were to ask me what were some of the most important defining moments, I, you know, I would probably tell you that the death of a parent, uh, in my case, when I was fairly young, I was 13. Um, I think another defining moment was when, uh, under the most fluky circumstances, I got a job right out of graduate school, which uh, brought me to Esquire magazine and which opened up, you know, a, a huge career opportunity for me. But, you know, if you if you think about those events, you know, death of somebody close to you or 
the opportunity to start a career, you know, those are moments that can define a man or they can define a woman. So, I, you know, I, I think the most interesting aspect to it is, you know, what what is a defining moment? You know, what how do we designate a moment that's defining, quote unquote, defining? And that's really a question that I think, you know, goes right to the heart of this book I just wrote, which is, you know, how how do we build a life story for ourselves and how do we select those particular memories that we say, all right, that was a turning point, that was a defining moment, that was a, you know, the best thing that ever happened to me, that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And it's really quite fascinating how we go about doing that. Right. And so, and so this new book is called The The Points Is, and it, and it's all about creating your personal narrative. So, you know, it goes to, I, I've, been, I've been reading the book, and I think it's absolutely incredible. It, it really goes to the heart of how we explain ourselves to ourselves, in other words, who we are and why. So, you know, where did this whole idea of, of you know, p- personal narrative come from with you? Well, the idea that, you know, I became curious about, you know, we, we all reach a certain point in life. Actually, we, we reach that point many times in life. But there comes a sort of a preeminent time in our life where we sort of sit, stop and say, okay, what is, all, what is all this about? You know, you know, often that happens, you know, notoriously that happens in middle age. You know, we, we've now had enough years under our belt both, you know, in, in the context of a relationship or a family or a career where we stop and we say, okay, you know, what is this all about and where is it going from here? And, and, and that time came for me a few years ago. I had an opportunity to just take a breath. I've been moving my family around from city to city to city, and I've worked in, you know, three or four very different uh, industries. And uh, I had an opportunity to take a breath and, and say, okay, let me try to take stock and you know, it's not so easy to do that. Where do you start? I kind of started blindly. I, I did several things. One thing I did is I just started talking to other people, which is, you know, where are you? Tell me your life story, you know, in brief or in full or however you hear that. Tell me about the most meaningful chapter and tell me about the least meaningful chapter and what, what would you say were the most important turning points and so on and so forth. So I, I gathered a lot of uh, stories from, from people and I kind of put all those aside to think about them later on. You know, the next thing I did, obviously, you can't take on a subject like this without reading like crazy. And so where do you start? You know, there isn't, hasn't been a, you know, barely been a, well, there's never been a philosopher who hasn't thought about it. There's probably very few novelists who haven't thought about what, what you know, what constitutes a meaningful life. So I did a lot of reading. And then the third thing I did was that I went back, you know, relative to what we're talking about, I went back and I, I thought about my own life and I began to get all of these sort of questions in my own mind about, okay, why did I remember that? You know, what does that have to do with this life story that I've been living for these many decades? And I, and that's where it kind of popped into my head that we all carry around, you do, and Connor does, and Roger, you know, everybody carries around these life stories that, that we don't write down necessarily. We, we just have them inside and they're all made of memories. Uh, and they've, got, you know, a beginning and there's a middle to the story and eventually there'll be an end and there's all these turning points, as I mentioned. So I became very, very interested in, in, in the nature of memories, why certain ones endure, why certain ones we rewrite, you know, quote unquote, rewrite in our head, we change our memories around, you know, rather radically. And what does that all have to do with a meaningful life story? So I became very interested in, in, in you know, narrative psychology and this whole 
human instinct, you know, this will, this, this absolutely innate, powerful drive that we have to create a story about our lives in our head. And because, you know, for many years I was an editor uh, at Esquire and I've been around writers and commissioning stories all my life, I think I know a thing or two about how stories are created. So I began to see these sort of interesting parallels between the private life story that you and I write in our heads and what happens when a real writer sits down at a, you know, with a word processor and actually writes uh, a real story, a printed story? And I think there are some, you know, pretty remarkable parallels between between the two. Hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot, lot of commonalities, and it's a really fascinating topic that you've kind of, uh, you know, dove into. So I'm I'm curious, you know, uh, along this journey, because a personal narrative requires a lot of of self reflection and being able to kind of like probe into your inner being and ask, ask questions about, you know, what did that story mean to me? Why am I making it mean that? Um, and, and all those sort of challenging questions that maybe not a lot of people go through. So did you see some commonalities when you started writing this book or researching for this book around how people go about viewing themselves and the difference between people who do self-reflect on a regular basis and people who don't? Well, I think most. I think you're right that most people don't. Although I would say that almost everyone thinks he or she should. You know, <laughs> we're always saying, right. "Well, wait a minute, hold on. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm sort of adrift here. I don't know what it means. I don't know why I did that. Uh, I'm not really sure that that was a really good decision. You know, what did I ever see in him or her? You know, we have all of these questions about these events that have taken place in our story that we often do not stop and think about, you know, was it right? And then often we don't go back and revisit and ask ourselves, why Why really did I do that? You know, we're all busy and we're all incredibly distracted. And we all have, you know, this wonderful thing called social media and the internet in general to fill up our time. And, you know, we're, we can stream this or that, you know, at a moment's notice. So we don't have a lot of time or inclination even to sit and, and do this. So that's one big commonality. But I do think it kind of sits in the back of our heads that we that we really should do this. And one thing led to another in my case, and I was really struggling with one part of the book. And this is relevant to what we're talking about. And I was just sitting there, I don't know, just staring off into space one day. And it occurred to me that once and only once in my life, I kept a diary. I'm not a diary keeper. And I kept it for a relatively short period of time. It was only about 23 months. I started it literally the day our son was born, uh, about 26 years ago, and uh, stopped writing it uh, shortly after our daughter was born, a little less than two years after, after I started it. And I hadn't gone back and read it in many, many years. Uh, and and I, in fact, I didn't even think I had it anymore. And I went back, I ran back home, and I looked into my current hard drive and there was this 81-page Word document that had sort of magically uh, been transferred from, you know, desktop to laptop to desktop to laptop. You know, it, this, this document survived, I don't know, 10 uh, Apple uh, system upgrades. You know, it even survived Steve Jobs himself. <laughs> and there it was just, it tucked away, you know, this dusty corner of my hard drive. And I read it. And what was so extraordinary to me about it was that it brought back so many meaningful insights, or not not, not insights, it, it triggered uh, a whole bunch of insights about my life at one point that, 
you know, perhaps that I could not have gotten had I sat there. Oh, and let me think about why that thing just happened, you know, in the moment. You, we don't know in the moment why something's meaningful or important. And it's only when we go back and revisit it. So that that experience totally opened my eyes to the value of keeping a diary. I'm still not keeping one, by the way, I should. <laughs> <laughs> but But when you do record you know, not even when you record events in real time, you really don't know what they're going to stand for later on when you're, you know, you're at a different point in life, you're in a different mood, it's a different context, the culture's changed, you know, a million things have, have, have changed. So I, I really began to understand memory in a whole different way and what we can do with memories uh, if, if we can actually go back and revisit them. Uh, as they were recorded in the diary. So I would go around and I would ask everybody, you can be in a diary, you can be in a diary. And virtually nobody is keeping a diary. And, uh, you know, when I ask them why, they will say, well, you know, I'm too busy or I don't write well, as you know, as if that matters, as if, you know, you're not writing for anybody but yourself, obviously. And then some people will say, well, what do I need a diary for when I have Facebook and Twitter? And, you know, that really, <laughs> it was a really incredible, uh, I really had to think about that. And, and there's some really good reasons that social media, however, you know, useful or entertaining or diverting it is, uh, it, it, it's not remotely, uh, it doesn't accomplish remotely what, a, what keeping a diary does. For and, it's not, and it's rarely ever your true self. Uh, no, it's well, it's your it's a little piece of yourself that that I don't want to be unfair because I'm on social media a lot. I know I'm not trying to be a Luddite here. But as you suggest, it's it's a it's a it's a side of you that you would like to have others understand or and or appreciate or applaud. You know, you're we're sort of in it for the likes, whether we admit it or not. Totally. And, and you're not in a diary for the likes. <laughs> you right. have nobody that, to like or dislike you but yourself. Right. When you're uh, when you're writing a diary, it kind of it kind of occurs to me that like people might be a little bit uh, pensive to dive into this type of work because you know personal narrative. Uh, these are the stories that we have labeled and, and put a lot of meaning uh, on, and, and we've basically created our identity out of our personal narrative, right? So to, to kind of like dig into past stories and things that have happened. And it, it's very interesting because, you know, when we look back and we look at certain situations, if people don't have a normal practice of doing that, of, of looking back at, back at a certain situation, there's a lot of just sort of automatic stories that can come up and, and we will attach very specific meaning. And so a lot of people, from what I've seen and from what I've kind of just from going through psychology and that kind of stuff, it's a lot of people attach, you know, negative or positive meanings to situations in the past. And without really digging into it, those are the situations that can cause a lot of suffering in the present moment where they'll look back and be like, oh, that happened and it, it means this negative thing. And then they carry that with them, you know, as as far as they go. So is is this practice, can this practice be very powerful from a stance of being able to understand your past in a more meaningful way so that you can let go of maybe some of the, the negative, negative um, emotions or feelings that you have towards choices and oh, decisions yeah. in the past? Definitely. Well, I mean, everything you just described applies to the, the so-called so talk therapy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in which, you know, I, I've always believed, I've, I've never gone through it. I'm obviously, as you can tell from the sound of my voice, a model of emotional sanity and well-balancedness. Uh, but I'm only kidding. But um, <laughs> <laughs> you don't know me. But, no. so, but I'm kidding. But that is, that is the 
the theoretical argument for, you know, behind, you know, classic Freudian talk therapy, which is you go back into your story, you tell the story, and with the gentle guidance uh, of, of, the, of the therapist, you, you, you re-examine events and perhaps come to a very different view of, of why you may have reacted the way you did or uh, at any given time. So there is value in doing that. And I've always had this kind of uh, slightly cynical view of talk therapy. But what I do believe uh, about it is that it offers you, if, you know, as you're sitting there lying on the couch, for the, for the next 50 minutes, even though you're paying for it, you've got this opportunity to, to write and or rewrite your life story. You know, and you have an audience who you're paying a lot of money to. And and that may actually, if if that feels therapeutic, and if that actually helps you, uh, I would argue that it's because that those fifty minutes have given you an opportunity to open up your creative channel. You know, so in effect, you're writing something. You know, quote, and I'm I'm doing quote air quotation marks with my hands now. Perfect. It doesn't play. Uh, <laughs> but, but you are in, in effect writing or rewriting or revising or editing. You know, your story. And that, that can be a very satisfying feeling. And I've got this kind of pet, you know, theory that it's not just mine, actually, but I believe very strongly that most of us walk around uh, feeling that we're not using our creative uh, channel sufficiently, that, that we've got a capacity to be more creative, but that our job or our life or our family obligations or, you know, all this other stuff get in the way and we're not being creative enough. That's one of the things that many, many people told to me, told me when I was interviewing them, I said, you know, what, what, what haven't you gotten to do enough? And a very extremely common response was, I haven't been creative enough. You know, my job isn't, or my day isn't, or I don't have enough time to, you know. So I, I think this idea that we write our, that we can tell our stories is very appealing to people because if only, not because we want to be writers, but because we get a real uh, sense of, of excitement and, and, and satisfaction and gratification when we open up our creative channel. And I think uh, one of the things I hope people take away from the, from the book is that it's really actually interesting to go back and think about how you've written the story, quote unquote, written the story inside. And it's just as interesting to think about how it, how it, how you might revise it over time as if you were sitting with a manuscript or a, or a diary that you hadn't looked at in, in many, many years. Hmm. And it's it, it's interesting what you just said. Uh, it, it, so so what you're saying is that it's important not only to uncover and and reflect on your story, but to actually share your story. Yeah, I know. I know this is a series about men, and men don't like to share their stories. Right. And you know, I, I, there are a lot of women are very annoyed with us as a gender uh, because we don't do that. And I think men kind of get a bad rap when it comes to that. But the fact is we don't like to share our stories because, uh, because it makes us vulnerable. Well, uh, because it makes us vulnerable because, you know, we've been victimized by this culture that says it's not, you know, you, we have role models who supposedly are strong and silent types who are, you know, real men and because it's vulnerable. And then a lot of, you know, truly what I would regard as a kind of extreme positions, which is, you know, we're, we're so angry at our mothers because, you know, we were ripped away from them at an early age and we don't trust women as a result, you know, all the rest. But I don't, I'm not, believe me, I'm not, I'm not no, advocating into that. But there is a very strong strain in, you know, in, 
in psychological history theory that, that that's why men are so screwed up because they were pulled from their mothers. It goes back to, you know, uh, the, you know, God knows it goes back to Oedipus. Right. But, um, but no, we don't like to share it. And I'm not suggesting we walk around and necessarily share it. What I am suggesting is at least we share it with ourselves, which is we go back as men, in this case, to our own stories and really try to you know, reflect on, on, on why, first of all, why, why did we remember certain things so strongly and why do we attach so much importance to certain, certain things and not to other things? The, the, the mysteries of memory became really fascinating to me. And I, I do spend a fair amount of uh, you know, time in the book uh, talking about how that all comes together. So let's kind of dive in because I'm curious, um, you know, for the for the listeners that are out there, I'm sure that there's a couple of them that are like, okay, I want to dive into my personal narrative or, you know, maybe go into my personal story a little bit more, but they don't really know where to start. Do you Do you have any sort of starting points for people that are are wanting to sort of dig into their personal narrative and, and understand. No, a good starting point would be to read the book, and it's, you know, I, I hope I'm not giving the impression that this is a sort of a psychological, you know, academic book. It's not. No, it's a lot. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what I what I tried to do, and it was a real challenge for me, is I tried to weave a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, the nature of memories and psychology and all the rest, with my own story. And I wasn't so intent on telling my own story to tell my own story. But from a narrative and uh, sort of a, an interesting reading point of view, I didn't know how to write the book unless I could use my own memories uh, as an example. And it sort of it, it enabled me to build a narrative. Um, I, I was sort of pulled kicking and screaming and by a couple of friends to put more of myself into the book. But I'm glad I did because at least it made it a narrative that you could follow. So. So one thing I think we can do is, um, to answer your question, is uh, one of the things I write about in the book is that we all carry with us, you know, what some have called a personal myth, which it changes over time. But, you know, when I was you know, eight years old, my personal myth was to play second base for the Phillies, Philadelphia Phillies, where, <laughs> I, where I grew up. Can still happen, and, Lee. Uh, I actually can't. So I had to change my personal myth because... <laughs> And the reason that my personal myth was second baseman for the Phillies is my personal myth didn't have much of an arm. And that was about the only position uh, that my personal myth could qualify for. But at least it wasn't right field, right? Which, right. Is, where it was, which is worse. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, we have this personal myth. And then as time goes on, when we get to be teenagers, we, we like change our personal myth as often as we change our underwear. Well, actually, some, some teenagers never, never, never change their underwear. But but we we're, we we change it. We we put on different personal myths. You know, I'm the class clown, or I'm the uh, tragic hero, or I'm the beautiful girl who never gets asked to the dance. You know, we 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 create this sort of prevailing myth for ourselves, and then we as we go through life, we 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 adapt it, change it, revise it. You know, kill a certain personal myth and hire another one. So one of the things I think you can do is first of all ask yourself, well, what is your what is my personal myth? What is it now? What what did it used to be? And then, uh, and then maybe try to get into your own life story, you know, through that uh, particular uh, window. The other simple thing you can do, and I've, I've tried this with people, is I'll try it with you guys, not to put you on the spot, but you know, if 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 if, if your life story as you know it inside were a novel, what genre would it be? You know, would it would it? And you, is it a tragedy? Is it a comedy? Is it a romantic comedy? Is it a disaster story you know what what where does it fall is it an adventure story mine would be a 
comedic adventure. <laughs> I could, I could see that. Bad. Yeah, yeah. I could see that being true. Yeah. yeah. I think. And what I, about what about yours? Uh, mine would definitely be an adventure with some romantic twinges to it. I think. What do you think? Yeah. I, I think that's probably romantic a, adventure. Yeah, yeah. Like romantic. like like romancing the stone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. And if, you know, if, and I would ask people, cause I, I, I try to get people to really sort of make the shift between that story that they never really think about to, to, you know, real novels or, you know, real movies or, you know, if, if, if who would play, who plays you in that, you know, if an actor who plays you in that story that you've got working inside, you know, and, you know, every, I don't know what I would, I would probably say George Clooney. But most other people would say inevitably Woody Allen. Yeah. So there'd be this you know, massive discrepancy between. My wife how, would love that. How yeah. about you? What? I think I think Rogers would be Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, uh, and Connors would probably be um, David Schwimmer. David Schwimmer. <laughs> David Schwimmer from Friends. Yeah, no, really, David Schwimmer. It, I don't know. That's weird. <laughs> I'd go with I'd go I get I go with Heath Ledger, but you know, yeah, of course, you of course you not would. with this anymore. Well, no, that's interesting. Yeah, you would say, well, he's, he's also probably, dead. I know, I know, I know, I know that he's dead. Yeah, but, but but you know, maybe maybe his personal myth that he's not admitting to is this sort of tragic figure, right? You know, who's who's appealing in many ways as Heath Ledger was, but mm. you know, whose story doesn't end well and certainly ends. Very he also played the Joker. Yes, that's right. He did. But anyway, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting parlor game, but it, it's also actually a way into really thinking about taking seriously the fact that you've been, quote unquote, writing this, this whatever it is, movie or novel about yourself uh, since since you were three. I mean, what's really interesting or what I found discovered that was really interesting is we start these stories when we're toddlers. And generally speaking, when we're about three, when 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 two things happen and they happen simultaneously, it's kind of miraculous. And there's a, so so there seems to be a connection between the two things. The first is at, at age three or three and a half or whenever we actually do develop the capacity to collect memories that some of which will endure. And then as time goes on, more of them endure. You know, we remember more and more. Uh, but but there's not a lot of evidence that we remember things much before we're we're three. We think we do, but oftentimes we we really don't. They were things that people were you know told us. So number one is we start collecting memories, and the other thing that happens uh, coincident with that is that we develop the capacity to make a story out of those memories or to understand stories generally, and both to tell stories ourselves, you know, verbally, and to understand stories that are told to us or read to us. So there's a lot of strong reason to believe that there is very much a connection between our ability to hold on to memories and our ability to then use those memories to build a story. And it's through that story that we not just we, we don't just understand who we are through that story. Just imagine how incoherent, how completely incoherent life would be, uh, your life would be, and life in general would be if you didn't have that life story inside. It, it's how you it's how you attribute motives to things to people. It's how you uh, understand cause and effect. You no, know, this happened because that happened. You know, without this happened when that happened and after that happened. If we didn't have that story thing. Nothing would make sense uh, about anything. Uh, so, it, it, so you, you know, you can talk all you want about the power of narrative, 
But the fact is the power of narrative is, 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 how, is why we can go through life and actually make some sense of it. Yeah. And it seems it, it's kind of interesting because as you were, as you were describing this, it seems like our internal narrative and there's, you know, the external narrative that other people see is often fundamentally different. And I think as you've kind of been describing this, it, that's why there's so much power in understanding your personal story, your personal narrative, is that when you tell that personal narrative from a place of foundation and, and you know, knowing and understanding without it being unencumbered by other people's version of that narrative, I think that that's where it, it really becomes a, a powerful story and, you know, where it's not kind of diluted by other people. Because it, it seems like externally there's a whole different view like everybody outside of yourself is going to have a different view of your personal narrative and then internally you have this other narrative going on and so i can imagine that separating the two do you do you find that people get their their personal narrative mixed up with other people's view of them well i think some people if you if you use the maybe an analogy to real writers i think what a lot of people do it, it varies i mean tremendously i mean there are some people who it doesn't matter how well meaning uh, say a partner or a friend is and says, you know what, you're getting your, you're, you're totally misunderstanding your own story. There are some people who will say, well, you know, hell with you. What do you know? I mean, I'm, my story is my story and I'm sticking to it. You know, so they're, they're very closed off to uh, quote unquote reader reaction. You know, just like a novel, a, a person sits down, a novelist writes a novel. And then there are some readers or critics who will say, this is what it means. And, and the novelist will say, God, I never meant it to mean that. That's not what I was trying to do. Uh, and and oftentimes the writer will get the, the novelist will get very annoyed at other people telling him or her, you know, what the novel's supposed to be about. I think we're like that with our own story. So some of us are very open and and very malleable when it comes to a reader response or an outsider's response to what our story, our life story means. And then others of us will say, you know, get out of, you know, hey, get off of my story. It's my story. I'll I'll write it and I'll interpret it, you know, any any which way. I think it really depends on the individual. Mm. Very yeah. cool. So Lee, just before we're, uh, we're ready to wrap up here, because I know we have uh, you know just 30 minutes with you, uh, what is your sort of lasting legacy that you'd like to leave in the world? I know that's a, a lofty question, but... Yeah, boy, it is. Uh, well, I'll tell you the legacy that will probably, if, if I have a legacy, and uh, you know, most of us don't have legacies uh, unless we do something really important or really horrible. And I'm not sure I've done either of those, but I, I think if I have a legacy at all, my fear is that it will be be the fact that I was one of the founding fathers of Rotisserie League Baseball that then turned into fantasy sports. Um, and my legacy will be somebody who was partly responsible for that happening and was so stupid he never made any money from it. <laughs> so, so that's what it, that's what it will probably say on my gravestone. Right. Well, what what but on but on the other hand uh, you, one of the really important moments that i had in writing this book was coming upon something that martin amos you know the british yes, once upon a time the bad boy writer now yep. a money stodgy stodgy yep money and now a stodgy middle-aged dad um he he was asked in an interview uh why he writes and he uh he thought for a minute and he said, uh, one of his kids who was very little ran into the room at that point. And he, he said, well, it could be that I write because there may be what he called an immortalizing principle at work, which is to say his kids 
or his kids' kids, you know, two generations from now, will be able to read his books and have a very good idea of what his what he was like, you know, how he thought, what is how his mind worked, and so on. And he referred to that as an immortalizing principle. So I don't know that I fully believe that. And while I like this new book of mine a huge amount, I mean, I'm very proud of it. I'm not sure it will immortalize me in in the minds of my kids or anybody else. But it's nice to know that it's there as a possibility. And by the way, I don't know if you've run into people like this. It happens more to people when they're in their 40s and 50s and 60s. But I have to tell you, I can't tell you how many people have told me about how much they want to literally get their life stories down on paper somehow, you know, not to not to publish it. But and I say, well, why do you want to do that? And they say, well, in case my kids or my kids kids will be curious one day. And I and I they might be curious. And I, that's sort of wishful thinking. Chances are their kids or their kids kids won't be that curious. But but this very powerful drive to to get their stories in some sort of permanent form as a way of saying I was here, right? I lived here once I came, you know, I, it mattered <laughs> that I, I was here. And, uh, I, I, I don't know if that's a universal impulse, but I have to tell you, particularly these days, it's a very common impulse that I hear all over the place. And even, you know, even people in their twenties and thirties have expressed it to a slightly lesser degree. Mm. Lee, Lee, thank you so much. I mean, you, you mentioned that you're proud of the book, and I think you you should be proud of the book. It's it's an incredible read. We we definitely encourage the Mad Talks community to go out and buy the book. It's called The Point Is Making Sense of Birth, Death, and Everything in Between. So go pick that up today. Um, Lee, is there any way that um what, what's the best way that people can uh, learn more about you or see you know see any new projects that are coming down the path? Well, sure. Thank you. Uh, I have a website. It's leeisenberg.com. It'll show you how you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook, and uh, it'll explain the book in, in some greater, and I hope, entertaining detail. Thank you very much. Oh, uh, hey, we, we really appreciate it. Um, th- and thank you to our listeners as well. Um, you can go to mantalks.com for more podcasts, blog posts, and any videos of our events, which are going to be going live soon. Please, of course, subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher so you never miss an episode. And, of course, leave us a rating on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening to the Mantalks podcast. Catch us next week for another inspiring conversation with an inspiring man. 